Th this sounds exactly like the sort of stuff you see with Agenda 21. It kind of fits the pattern. It's not like these people are saying, oh, we're going to do an Agenda 21 project. Like, nobody, nobody says that. <laughs> and, and to be honest, none of the people doing it probably even know. Like, most of the people enacting this stuff, you know, probably have no idea that it exists, which is why when, when people go into these council meetings and start screaming about Agenda 21, people look at, at them like they're crazy because they've never even heard of the thing. Right, but that's what I'm saying is, is, you know, you're saying, you know, people act like it doesn't exist. I'm saying it doesn't exist. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 22. Quick audio note, the first session of this episode was recorded at the same time that we did the intro to the previous episode, and as I mentioned there, I had some audio problems where I was using the wrong mic to record myself, so the effects of Dark Tom Woods can be felt on this episode, just like they were on the previous one. However, my audio quality does improve in the second half of the episode. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, I recommend you go back and do that before you listen to this one. In that episode, we discussed the Agenda 21 conspiracy with the Friends Against Government podcast. And in this episode, we wanted to step back and take a bit more of a sober look at it and maybe try to cover off some points that we, that we might have glossed over in that episode. This is a huge topic. And in that last episode, I felt like it was kind of a, it was a little bit like drinking from a fire hose, just kind of an information dump just to, to get out into the open what all this stuff was. Um, and so in this episode, we wanted to touch on some of the more interesting points that we might not have really elaborated on or, or that we skipped over altogether. Or that just evolved into a total joke. Yeah. <laughs> so we were presenting this from sort of the, the Rosa Corey perspective. And, and as we said in that episode, Rosa Corey is very much an anti-Agenda 21 activist uh, who's written this book, Behind the Green Mask, which talks about how she sees Agenda 21 as sort of a hijacking of the environmentalist movement. And her perspective is something that we would probably refer to as a NIMBY perspective, where she's she's pretty much against any of this development if it's related to Agenda 21 across the board, to the point where she says stuff like, if you hear the term smart growth or new urbanism or even eyes on the street, which is a Jane Jacobs thing, <laughs> then watch out because that, that's, a, that's a signaling for an Agenda 21 takeover of your town. I think she's a bit too paranoid in that sense, and she tends to throw out the baby with the bathwater. For one thing, she she kind of lumps in all these concepts into this one amorphous blob, which is you know the, the Agenda Twenty One monster. When there there are some subtleties and differences between, for example, smart growth and new urbanism. There's a better criticism of smart growth that I've seen from Chuck Marone at Strong Towns, where he's not necessarily an opponent of it, and he says that he's on board with a lot of what they're doing. But he often gets called a smart growth advocate, and he really emphasizes that that's not what he is. He's a strong towns advocate, which is his own strategy for supporting towns that is really focused more on, on developing things in an actually sustainable sense, which is which means financially sustainable. He talks about some towns he's visited where they've, they've boasted about some new smart growth development they've done, and it's 20 miles outside of town. You know, It's got a little, the little local downtown walkable areas and all that stuff. You know, so they've kind, of, they've kind of followed all the rules of smart growth, but it's done in such a way that it just doesn't mesh with the, the fabric of the original city or the original town that was there. Yeah, honestly, when when I hear people talk about smart growth, it's like I don't really even know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> or what they think it is. Like, what like what does that mean to them? I mean, it's one of these things that obviously there's a semantic problem there, where you know you're using the word smart to describe something. Well, that makes it sound like it's 
that much better than anything else anyone else could come up with. Yeah, and Chuck shares the same concern where he says, you know, smart growth is kind of this loaded term that implies that anything else is dumb growth. So it immediately puts people offside if they're in favor of, you know, a more kind of typical suburban development as opposed to kind of new urbanism. Right. And the other problem I have with it as a term is that it implies, I mean, there, there's an underlying implication that it's planned. You know, smart growth is planned growth, that if you're not planning these certain areas of your city in a certain way, that that's not smart. And of course, a lot of the kind of insights we've talked about with, with urbanism and urban development and the way that cities should grow, which we think is, is in agreement with the kind of things that Jane Jacobs would have said, is that um, cities really need to grow organically, that you need to leave room for entrepreneurs to discover value and to find synergies with, with adjacent uses, to experiment, to, to make mistakes, and to find ways to correct those mistakes uh, within the fabric of the built environment. But of course, none of that is smart, right? None of that is planned. Yeah. And none of that can be sold to a city by a planner. <laughs> well, especially by a large developer who wants to, instead of developing a house here and there, wants to develop a whole district. Right. But, you know, there, there, if you have a developer who's working on a project like that, then there, that's where it actually becomes relevant. <laughs> that's where, that's where it becomes meaningful. And again, not smart growth, but like you said, it's, it's very closely related to the concepts of new urbanism. I was just down in Florida. Uh, visiting my parents and pretty near where where they live, there's a brand new development going in called Babcock Ranch. And the claim to fame here is that it's, they're saying that it's going to be the first fully solar powered city in the country. And what they're doing is it's this huge, the whole backstory is kind of interesting. There was this plot of land that was used as a ranch, it was cattle ranch. It was owned or was bought sometime in the 20th century, I think early 20th century, by a guy who used to be a mayor of Pittsburgh. I think his name was Babcock. And then it's been in the family kind of ever since then. It's just it's this big plot of land that's been used for ranching. You know, it's kind of like a gentleman's ranch, I guess, when he set it up. But but it's it's something that's been used by, I don't know if they, if they rented it out to local ranchers or how that all works. But anyways, it got to a point where the family had this huge plot of land and they wanted to sell it. And the state had approached them, or I don't know who approached who, but the state of Florida came to talk to them because the state wanted to take this plot of land as a preservation area. You know, we talked about these wildlands networks on the last episode, and this was that kind of a thing where they had kind of they had some kind of a of a stretch of preserved areas running, I think, from Lake Okeechobee south or south or west or I'm not sure where exactly it goes. Uh, but they had some kind of connected networks and they saw this as a piece that could really, that could fit into that whole network of green space that they, they saw as important for wildlife. So the state wanted this land for preservation. But what the family selling the land found was that they were going to get taxed through the nose somehow if they sold this to the state. Whereas if they sold it to a private developer, then somehow they wouldn't get taxed nearly as much or something, right? Like, like it was it, to the point that it wouldn't have been worth it to them to sell to the state. So the state then basically partnered with a, a private developer. I don't know if they formally partnered with them, but there was a private developer came in and said, well, look it, we can buy this huge piece of land from this family as a private developer. And then we will donate 75% of the land back to the state as this, this wildlife reserve. Mm. And that could also continue to be used 
for cattle ranching. Is that a verb? Ranching? Is that what yeah, you do with cattle? So. You ranch them? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what's going on down there. That's what I do with cattle. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so so now this this private developer had this huge piece of land. This is kind of near Fort Myers, Florida. And they're building this out truly as a city. I think they're looking to have, I think that the final build out, of course, there's many phases, but I think the final build out over maybe 20 years or so is something like 50,000 people. Wow. And they're doing all of this with new urbanism design principles and with a lot of really advanced sustainability features. I mentioned the solar aspect of it. One thing they're doing is taking a big piece of this huge parcel of land and having Florida Power and Light, which is a, a big power company down there, which actually has a power station pretty close by. Uh, they're coming in and putting in this huge field of solar panels. And so the idea is that now they don't I, I don't think the town owns the solar panels. I think Florida Power and Light technically owns the panels and it just feeds into their distribution. But there's then some some subsidized rate given by Florida Power and Light back to the town mm. as essentially a solar, you know, a solar credit for each of the electricity users in town. The difference between that development and the stuff that Rosa Cori is supposed to is that's essentially a greenfield project, isn't it? So they're not tearing down anyone's houses with eminent domain to build that project. It's right. they're tearing down the, the houses of some probably rare frogs or whatever in the in the Everglades. <laughs> to do some land well they actually what they do in Florida whenever they build these housing developments is they they put lakes in everywhere yeah <laughs> they just you know they, they create all these man-made lakes so that everybody can have a water view yeah and so they're actually probably creating more frog habitat down there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but it, it is kind of funny that you know this this whole thing is, is done in the name of you know, green development and I would imagine that this is there's some tie-in here between. I mean, this sounds like an Agenda 21 type project where you've got this almost a public-private partnership. You know, you've got local utilities getting involved in various subsidies for for promising to reserve land as a preserve. I mean, this sounds exactly like the sort of stuff you see with Agenda 21. Yeah, and so let, I mean, all right. So for me, like Agenda 21, that was kind of like a snapshot, right? That was like a moment in time with this whole sustainable development movement and, and concept, you know, and we, we I, I guess we talked about this a bit in the episode, but it's not like Agenda 21 is an active force out there in the world of development. It was kind of a, you know, it was this document, but I, I think it was, it was a statement of, of principles. But now those principles all really just stand on their own and, and they have come to create a set of, of incentives and, and desires among developers among everybody involved really with the built environment. So to me, like to say that this is an Agenda 21 project or that Agenda 21 is controlling this or, or, or something like that, I don't know, it just, it just isn't very meaningful. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And really what I meant is that it kind of fits the pattern. It's not like these people are saying, oh, we're going to do an Agenda 21 project. Like nobody, nobody says that. <laughs> and, and to be honest, none of the people doing it probably even know, like most of the people enacting this stuff you know, probably have no idea that it exists, which is why when, when people go into these council meetings and start screaming about Agenda 21, people look at, at them like they're crazy because they've never even heard of the thing. <laughs> right. But that's what I'm saying is, is you know, you're saying, you know, people act like it doesn't exist. I'm saying it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it, it did exist. And now it's just, you know, there are people who want to preserve um, wild lands. Um, yeah. And that's what the state wants to do in this case. And there are people who want to build, you know, solar powered housing. And that's what 
the developers doing in this case. And there are people who want to create, you know, walkable city centers, which is what the new urbanist designers are doing in this case. And so to me, it's like, again, I, ju I just don't see it being meaningful to talk about Agenda 21 as, as some kind of a scarlet letter on these, on these projects. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of the concepts like preserving places for wild animals, the basic concept certainly has some merit. And so I think, especially as libertarians looking at these things, we need to look at them and say, well, okay, what's good about this? What's bad about this? What's, you know, are they using eminent domain? Well, that's bad. Are they taking tax dollars to fund this development? Well, that's bad. Mm. But we should also realize that when there is a certain demand out there for something like preservation, that there can be libertarian ways of achieving that as well. And for me, you know, in this case, yes, even though they've donated this land to the state as the agency who's going to preserve this piece of land, the concept of a developer buying land and then donating that for preservation, I think that is how preservation should happen in a libertarian world. Yeah, and that's actually one strength of libertarianism that I think other philosophies don't really have, is that we have this pretty clear line in the sand that when you cross that, then we know that you're in violation of the NAP or whatever. So, for example, using eminent domain, using tax dollars, uh, pretty much using using the heavy hand of government in any way to achieve your goals. That's the stuff that we criticize. And I think we need to be very careful about it. As I said in the other episode, the conspiracy part of this is that it's all a big slippery slope. And so, you know, once you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. So there's a tendency to say, well, okay, you're not violating my rights right now. But if I agree to this, then it's going to lead to this other thing, and pretty soon I'm not going to have a choice. And that's what you see happening with some of these farmers out west where you know they're getting these sort of offers to give up some of their land or give up an easement on their land as a nature preserve. And I actually tweeted something about this the other day where or I shared an article about a group called the American Prairie Reserve, mm -hmm. which is a non-governmental you know, nonprofit who's buying up hundreds of thousands of acres of millions of acres, acres of land around, I think it was in somewhere in Montana. And from from what I could tell, it's, you know, it, it is non-governmental, non-profit. Apparently, they've got something like a $75 million bank account. And so you look at it and you go, where did these guys get $75 million from? <laughs> and so, you know, I haven't done I haven't done much digging into it to, to figure that out, but I kind of posed the question. Um, you know, they've got a thing on their site where they sell t-shirts, you know, that Pretty sure they haven't made $75 million from selling t-shirts. <laughs> you can see on their website, there's a board of directors and scrolling down that, it looks like there's a lot of private equity people. And I was looking for names, you know, with Rockefellers and that sort of stuff. I didn't see any of that, but I did, the one name that kind of jumped out was there, there was a something in Warburg Partners Capital or something like that, you know. Warburg is one of these kind of old, old money names that goes back to the sort of uh, Rockefeller days and the, the turn of the century in the early days of the central bank. But I don't know. That could just yeah, I don't know. Are the are the are the Rockefellers and like the Rothschilds like are they like how relevant are they? Like I know like back in the seventies and stuff, you know, you had David Rockefeller and and what John D Rockefeller and Nelson Rockefeller, who was what the governor of New York or something at one point. Yeah, and you know, and then you had Edmund de Rothschild. Mm. Is there like another generation of those guys now who are who are still doing all the same stuff? Like the you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I or, don't... or is it like, or is it the kind of thing where like the the third generation from money like ends up losing it all? <laughs> yeah, no, they they definitely haven't lost all the money. But no, I know. I think what's happened is because there was a um. Doing some of the research for this, there was an episode of the Tragedy and Hope podcast where he presents a lot of this stuff about Agenda 21, so where we found out about people like Rosa Corey and, and some others. But he also presents, he includes, there's like an entire 
History Channel documentary about the, Ro- the Rockefellers, where they kind of go through all of that, and and they do end with kind of like the latest generation, where they they kind of spin it as at that point it's the whole thing's kind of diluted, right? So because you've got that many generations, and so um, so th- th- there's that many more of them, you know, that you don't just have the the sort of family power concentrated in, in a few people's hands, right? And the impression I got was that the later generations kind of lost interest in a lot of that stuff. They weren't kind of as, as uh, fanatical about it as, as some of the, as like the John D's and the, the Nelsons and all that were. Turns out they just like money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, I, I can't remember what, where it ended up and what those people are up to these days. I haven't really looked into it. But. Well, there was one interesting, one interesting kind of news piece that I think it might've been sometime like in the last five years or five or 10 years where, the Rockefeller family has now divested from oil. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they got their start with the original John D. Rockefeller with Standard Oil. So I guess there still is some kind of you know organization around the way that family is is structured, and maybe there still are are activists in certain ways like that. Yeah, and, and so what happens is you see these groups like APR, the American Prairie Reserve, who are who are these private groups, and so. At first glance, and probably at second and third glance, you look at it and say, well, this is actually a, a libertarian approach to, to achieving these, you know, wild lands or, or rewilding or land preservation projects, which, you know, really we, as libertarian, as libertarians, qua libertarians, we, we, we don't really have a specific, uh, objection to because they're not using, they're not using force. They're not using coercion in any way. There is kind of a lingering concern though. That what they're doing, even though it's not sort of overtly coercive, is over the long run, as, as they sort of buy up more and more of these ranches and properties, that it sort of guts the industry in that region and makes it that much harder for the remaining ranchers to make a living because, because there's less of an economy of scale there for, you know, for example, someone's coming to pick up a delivery of cattle or something like that, rather than stopping at a few different ranches along the way. There are fewer ranchers out there for them to kind of share resources with. And so, so this is where you see some of these concerns from farmers about, you know, how they're, they're gutting, they're not supporting the local infrastructure and then they're sort of gutting these, these rural communities in order to replace them with these wildlife reserves. So even though that's not a strictly libertarian objection, I think it is something that we need to, to keep in mind that, and, th- and this applies beyond this sort of scope as well, that, you know, that, that libertarians can often be, um, maybe less critical than they should be. You know, people say, oh, well, it's, it's a private company. They can do what they want. You know, they're not, they're not, uh, putting a gun at anyone. But at the same time, you know, that's not the, the totality of, of morality in a situation. Well, but, but what they're doing, if I understand what, what, what you just said about, about how they're trying to go about this, um, is they're putting a price on that land, right? So that they're putting a price on the value of having that land for preservation versus having it available for ranching. As you heard earlier, I don't know anything about the ranching industry. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> but if they're able to come in and bid up this land to the point that it's not worthwhile for the ranchers to continue to own it, then they're expressing a shift in values and, and a shift in demand uh, for the use of this land. I will say, as a counterpoint to what you just said, that there's another problem out in those kinds of areas, not so much on privately owned land, but when you get out into some of these Western areas, of course, a lot of that land is federal land. And I've been reading a paper by PERC, which is the Property and Environment Research Center, which I see as a fairly libertarian. I don't know if they would identify that way, but... I think they do. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think Walter Block has had some involvement with them. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, very, I mean, certainly a lot of the arguments they're making are very much kind of libertarian free market arguments for the way that a lot of these Western lands should be managed. The way it works now is that all these federal lands, you know, people think that the government owns all these lands out in the West and they're just preserving that, you know, that it's all just nature preserve for all the wildlife. And of course, that's not what it is, that they're preserving all this land for resource extraction. Um, I mean, yes, there are there are some conservation areas, but all these federal protections were established, what, in the early 20th century, I guess. Teddy Roosevelt, wasn't that his big thing? Well, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt's big things were basically preserving wildlife and slaughtering Filipinos. So all these federal lands were being established as the U.S. was expanding westward and as you started to have things like oil development, oil exploration, uh, coal exploration, you know, supporting, I guess, steel industries. And some of these western lands were found to be rich in some of these mineral resources, and they were also found to be good for grazing. I think they're, they're not as productive for farming as areas in the east. They don't get quite as much rainfall. So grazing, I guess, was a better use for a lot of these lands than just having them be developed as agriculture. So they set up a system of grazing rights and mining rights and, you know, oil exploration rights where they essentially rent out the rights to a certain piece of land to certain companies or certain ranchers or, or people who live in the area for a period of 10 years. So there are these, these 10 year leases and they're, I guess, renewable at the end, but they're very strict about how these things can be used. And so this paper I was reading from Perk was saying that for preservationists, like I think they mentioned the American Prairie Reserve, when guys like this come into these federal lands and they want to preserve them, there have been cases where they've tried to come to auctions and tried to bid for the ranching rights or you know the grazing rights or whatever um, over certain parcels of land. Um, and they're not allowed to do it because in order to maintain those grazing rights, you have to actually graze cattle. Yeah. And the federal government is literally prohibiting private preservation on all of these federal lands because all they're doing is holding it for grazing, for mining, for drilling, and any other use is prohibited. Yeah, because what the American Prairie Reserve does is they actually they'll buy a ranch property and by buying that property, they also get the grazing rights to the federal land that that property has access to. Yeah, you actually you have to you have to own like a homestead within a certain area of these grazing areas. Yeah. In order to in order to buy the land, so so you can't just go out and you know buy the rights to a certain piece of land for a period of time. You have to actually own a homestead. You have to graze cattle on it. Mm. And so what one organization did is they actually reintroduced like bison, I guess, to, to a certain area because that was that technically met the requirements of grazing cattle, but they just converted it basically to a, to a bison preserve. Yeah, I think it's state by state. So like the state of Montana allows you to classify bison as cattle or something like that, but, but other states don't. Bison will always be cattle to me. listen to that podcast defending utah where you know these guys were kind of talking about things from the kind of ranchers perspective and utah better defend itself <laughs> we're, we're coming for you utah <laughs> <laughs> and what, what these guys were saying was they, they were getting i mean again like i thought they had a pretty good take on everything but but they were getting a bit um conspiratorial where apparently there's different groups there so there are groups there you know there's this whole kind of movement now to sort of privatize all this federal land you know, we saw this whole thing with the was it the BLM protests 
the was it the Clive and Bundy family where they went up and occupied some ranger station or something like that. Hmm. And that was all kind of tied into this movement to kind of reclaim federal lands by private ranchers. Mm-hmm. So instead of having these kind of federal grazing rights, they actually privately own uh, a lot of this land, um, which, you know, as libertarians, that's, that's on the face of it, something that we could definitely get behind. What these guys from Defending Utah were saying was that there is essentially almost like like shell groups that will come into these communities and be uh, in favor of privatizing federal land, but what they're doing is is they're you know they're privatizing it for these nature preserves, which is of course affecting the farmers in that they you know they can't graze their cattle there anymore, and they start getting these problems with some of the large carnivores that they're introducing to that land, as well as kind of you know hollowing out sort of the way of life that's been going on there for probably a century. Right, but again, you know that way of life. If I'm understanding what you're saying, that way of life has been made possible by a federal government privilege for all these ranchers and grazers. They've developed that land in a way where they haven't been exposed to a broader market competing for other demands like preservation. Yeah, that's true. But there's also, and, and I agree that that's a, that that's a market distortion. There's, there's another market distortion, which is that those ranchers are limited to something like 160 acres for a homestead. So essentially, you can't own, you know, if you go out there uh, west, you create a homestead, you can't own more than 160 acres, which that was one of these kind of numbers that was set up east of the Mississippi, where you've got this kind of lush land, and, and you, know, you only need so much land to, to start a viable farm. But when you're out there, and the land's a lot more sparse, then you actually need a lot more land in order to raise cattle or whatever, just, just to right, support like right. a single family. So. And this is where I think guys like, like Mer, and I think we even mentioned this before that, that the sort of basis for homesteading needs to be based on a sort of reasonable understanding of what's required to build a, a legitimate homestead in a certain area. And, and it's, it's very much dependent on local geography and climate and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I would say that you would define the, that kind of parcel size for homesteading is that in order to homestead, we like to say that, oh, you go and labor with the land in order to establish the extents of your homestead. But the reality is that in order to do that, you have to make a claim first. You have to make a claim and define you know, a boundary or define an area of land and then some declaration of intent of what you're going to do on that land, right? Mm. So to me, it's like Walter Block has kind of said things like, well, you know, you, you start farming at one side of the property and you, you work your way to the other side of the property and, and if somebody else has started, you know, on the other side and worked towards you, then you don't get that land because they've homesteaded it. Yeah. But I think realistically, there needs to be a system of of claims where if you want to go and let's say start planting a large piece of land for for agriculture, that you need to be able to make a claim first where you're declaring the intent you're going to have for that land. And, you know, as long as nobody else has done that before you on that parcel of land, you should be able to defend that claim during the period of time while you're establishing the area that you're homesteading, that you're farming or whatever. Yeah. But if for some reason, you know, if that period of time passes and you haven't homesteaded the full extent of it, then you shouldn't get to keep the rest of that or you should have to, you know, reclaim it or renew it or whatever. You could think of any number of processes there to manage that. But we, when you think about homesteading in kind of realistic terms, I think that that's, that's the kind of process that you could look at. And so in that case, there's really no need for any kind of limits on the size of a parcel because those limits would be established by each individual homesteader based on what they think they can they can achieve, how much they can take on, and, and how much they can actually 
turn into into productive land. Yeah. I mean, the main point I was making is that there is this arbitrary limit that's been imposed on them. So it's always when, when the state gets involved, you get one problem that they create and then the solution that they propose, which creates other problems. Right. And so, and then that's exactly what you get here. You know, you've got this, they've created the, the original problem by limiting the size of the homestead. And then they've tried to compensate for that by granting these federal grazing rights on the federal lands. But in reality, both of those are market distorting factors that just mess up the whole system. Right. Right. You know, to tie this back into the preservation discussion, I think one problem we have with libertarian homesteading theory is that we don't have a good way to describe how somebody could homestead a parcel of land as preservation land, as, you know, or conservation land, because the whole Lockean homesteading principle is founded on this idea that you're mixing your labor with the land, you know, that you're going out and, and farming or, or, you know, felling trees or whatever mm-hmm. over the, the area of land that you're claiming. I think that there should be a means for people to uh, make a claim for land and to establish it for preservation. Because, you know, even the most black-hearted anti-environmentalist could probably think of a few natural areas that they like and that they think should should stay the way that they are. So I think that it's now our job, Joe, to define a way for libertarians to homestead land for the purpose of preservation without mixing their labor with it. Now, of course, the the simplest thing you could say is, is well, you know, you could make some kind of a trail network or something so that, you know, it becomes hiking land and then you're, you know, then that's a use but I, I want to I want to try to come up with something more pure than that. <laughs> yeah, that this is truly like off limits, you know, no go land like we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, is there a way to achieve that within the bounds of libertarian homesteading theory? Yeah, and, and I think you kind of said it before, where where if someone makes a claim to this land and they declare it as the use that I'm claiming for this land is as a as a wildlife reserve, then really what they need to do to demonstrate that. Is, is simply defend it and keep off any, any trespassers or poachers or whatever. That's the labor that they're exerting to sort of mix with that land. Really just the act of, of actually preserving it and, and preventing other humans from, from accessing that land. Yeah, actually, so I was recently at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum and Stefan Kinsella gave a talk there and I got a chance to ask him a question at the end of it. His talk was all about theories of property rights and the proper way that libertarians should think about property rights. The question I asked him at the end was about abandonment and, you know, at what point does land become abandoned? Because there's this idea in libertarianism that once you homestead a piece of land and it comes into ownership, then you own that, I guess, in perpetuity, unless you sell it or abandon it. And what you hear from some people on the left and and even, you know, left libertarians is arguments that, well, it's not right that people can just own all this land without using it, you know, without, without maintaining the productive use of it, which is the whole point of, of locking homesteading, is to say that this land that otherwise is available to the public as common unowned land, in order to take that out of that public sphere, there needs to be a justification for somebody to claim the right to be able to evict people from a piece of property. And so that's where locking homesteading comes in, you know, mixing your labor with the land, um, putting the land into productive use. To many, that is the justification for claiming eviction rights over a parcel of land. And so what some left libertarians say is, well, yes, that's correct. It's all well and good. And in fact, it's so correct, or, or Lockean homesteading is such a strong principle that it needs to be applied on an ongoing basis to land ownership. 
So the landowner has to keep using the land in a productive way in order to keep maintaining their claim over that land. Mm. And of course, then the argument there is that a lot of private property should be turned back over either to, to public use or common ownership. But what anarcho-capitalists would say is that that's not right. You know, again, that, that this land, once it comes into ownership, once that ownership claim has been established, that that should continue in perpetuity until someone abandons it. So long story short, so I, had, I asked Stefan, you know, what constitutes abandonment of a piece of land? Is there a point at which land that has been, you know, allowed to lie fallow, as I think Murray Rothbard would say, is there a point at which that reverts to being unowned land that can then be homesteaded by someone else? And the answer that Stefan gave was essentially what you just said, that, you know, there comes a point where somebody basically stops defending their land. They stop exercising those eviction rights. And at that point, within kind of common law or statutory law or whatever, you can start to establish some time limits on some of these things. But the concept is that, yes, there can be a point where if somebody isn't defending their land, then that land can be said to be abandoned and that it should then be open for homesteading. So yeah, so I would agree with you that defending the land and evicting trespassers on an ongoing basis, I think that can be a means for maintaining a claim over preservation land. But even before that, I think there needs to be some other criteria when the claim is made to establish it as preservation land. Because otherwise people would go in and say, well, I'm going I'm to preserve this huge piece of land, you know, and at some point in the future, maybe they start just developing it or, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, it becomes much more valuable and then they sell it off for the mining rights or, or who knows. Yeah. Which, by the way, is exactly what the federal government does. <laughs> yeah, the National Forestry Service. Is, is not a service that preserves forests. It's a service that preserves forestry. <laughs> right. The main thing they do is build roads so that loggers can access forests. Right. And rent the land to them and rent the, the trees to them so that the foresters don't care about, you know, replanting it or anything. Right. They, <laughs> they just go on and take it and leave. And then somebody else gets the next lease for the next 10 years. Yeah. I guess what I have in mind is that if someone wants to make a claim on a libertarian basis to preserve an area of land, that you might have some criteria like, you know, obviously that they would be prohibited from developing the land. So it's kind of the opposite of, I guess, the Lockean principle, that if they're saying that that nobody else is going to be allowed to develop this land, that obviously they themselves shouldn't be allowed to develop the land. I would say that there should probably be a third party who has essentially a lien on the land. So that if the homesteader does decide to do something with the land, like try to sell it or develop it, that they would have to get this third party, which could be some kind of a conservation group or something. Um, you know, they would have to get them to sign off on it before they could sell the land or use the land for some other use. You can think of some restrictions like that, that if we're taking this land off the table for homesteading for development, that it should really remain as preservation land and that there shouldn't be ways for people to essentially, you know, hoard the land for, for some kind of uh, future financial gain. Yeah. I don't know. Does that, does that make me a hippie saying that? <laughs> <laughs> so does that make me a left libertarian? There's got to be market forces that come into play that at some point as well, you know, where, where someone's preserving this as a wildlife reserve. But, you know, it could be that there's some massive mineral deposit there, which, which would greatly benefit society if it was developed. So again, there's, you know, the market's all about balancing diverse interests. So in that case, there might be some way that they could grant a certain part of that land to some miner to develop an, an underground mine or something like that, which wouldn't have too much of a surface impact, but where they could actually develop the deposit underground. 
or, or let's say it's you know, drilling for oil or something like that. I mean, people complain about, it, especially like, like fracking and all this stuff. Right. Uh, which, which, I mean, okay, I'm not going to get into fracking. You know, there, there, I think, I think the whole thing with fracking, it's really more of a kind of case by case geology based issue, which I'm really not qualified to discuss in terms of impact that it can have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people say like, oh, well, it's, it's destroying our landscape. Well, you, you can get on Google Earth and see where some of these big kind of developments of fracking, you know, oil and gas developments have come up with. Um, so especially in Queensland here in, in in Australia, there's a lot of coal seam gas. And if you look at it, you can see these kind of grids of, of access roads to the wellheads and stuff, and I guess pipelines to, to extract the gas. But in between all that, there's, there's a lot of basically either undeveloped space or ranch land, you know, and so, so there are all of these, these kind of conflicts that happen up there between the oil and gas companies and the ranchers. You know, there's a lot of these, uh, kind of lock the gate campaigns where these ranchers are saying that they, they won't allow only gas development on their property. Hmm. Fair enough. That's, you know, that's, that's their right. Right. But people will say, uh, you know, at ground level, you look at something, you say, oh, look, there's this, this road here that's kind of torn through this wilderness. You know, it's a dirt road. And then, you know, or, or you see all the, there's these wellheads all over the place. It's like, well, if you actually look at it, there's actually, they, they don't take up that much space. You know, they take up kind of, linear space but not like 2d space you know when you compare that to the amount of space that's like a ranch takes up yeah it's nothing hmm. especially for the value of of the product that they're producing you know they're producing a, a highly valuable valuable product from relatively small land footprint right so i think people that especially environmentalists that really get i mean okay it, it's fine to be concerned about oil spills and stuff like that in reality that stuff is, is vanishingly rare these days and I mean, I, I can tell you from having worked with some of these oil and gas projects that the, you know, that the sort of environmental processes and standards and stuff they have are stricter than anything you'll see coming out of any government. Uh-huh. Oil and gas companies are, are more bureaucratic than most governments. <laughs> There's always questions about, okay, but that's what they've got down on paper. Are they actually applying it? And I think the reality is, yeah, because they audit themselves on all this stuff, and, you know, and, and they have third party auditors that, that audit them on all this stuff. You know, so, so there are these sort of, I mean, that's the thing, like, no, no, nobody in an oil and gas company, you know, is sitting there going, oh, how can we, how can we destroy the environment to, it's not that, it's not that they don't care about that stuff. Nobody wants to have an oil spill. Like, nobody wants to have an environmental catastrophe on their hands. Right. You know, and, and it's not just a bottom line thing. It's just, you know, there are actually people that work in these places that care about things just as much as, as any hippie does. And then I would argue that, in many cases, they probably care a bit more about it because they're actually out there, you know, working in these places and enacting policies and processes to to actively protect these places. You know, whereas what's a hippie doing just posting crap on Facebook? You know. Well, and, and yeah, and people have this idea, you know, that not just oil and gas companies, but really any company. I mean, you get into this with with some of the kind of products that I look into, you know, specifying for architectural projects. Any kind of safety procedure, let's say nothing's going to be perfect, right? There are always, uh, managing safety isn't a matter of saying, well, this is a safe thing to do and this thing isn't safe to do. And so these companies are choosing to either do the safe thing or the thing that's not safe. It's like, it's not black and white. All of this stuff is about managing risk. And, you know, there are costs associated with with certain levels of risk management and checks and balances and everything. And that's one of the challenges that that any of these companies need to face is, is balancing certain risks with the cost that it would take to to mitigate those risks. Yeah, and and when you're even tendering for for work on one of these sites, you know, you've got to submit risk management plans where, where you list out 
all the potential risks that could happen and then how you're going to mitigate those. There's very kind of formal processes to, to do this stuff. There's a development in, on an island northwest of Australia called Barrow Island, which is owned by Chevron. They've got some sort of facility there. It's, I'm not sure if it's a refinery or a, just a sort of collection point for all their offshore wells where they've actually created this uh, nature reserve of this whole island and they've won awards and stuff for it, for it being, you know, such a good nature reserve that they've been able to categorize and, and preserve all these, these various kind of rare animals up there. Hmm. And so, so they kind of spruiked that as, as sort of a model for how environmental protection could be done. And so, you know, of course, as a libertarian looking at that, it says, yeah, well, that, that looks great. And, you know, there's always these, these kind of lingering doubts as to, oh, well, are they just doing that because, you know, the government wouldn't have let them create that development if they hadn't promised to do that? You know, who knows? Again, it's, it's the government distorting everything, so you don't know what to think. But I think examples like this, as well as the sort of APR example, and, and a lot of the stuff that Perk writes about, demonstrate that, that you can achieve these sustainability environmentalist ends using non-governmental means. One aspect of Agenda 21 that we didn't really get into with Bird and Carr is the use of public-private partnerships as one of the main tools to implementing all this stuff. Now, there are some people who will call any public-private partnership a form of fascism because that was one of the economic arrangements under fascism. Now, I think fascism is a much, has a much broader scope than that but it is, as Bird said, very much the neoliberal approach to getting this stuff done, where you have some private corporation teaming up with the government to get some public funding in order to build some project. When you say public-private partnership, what is that? Uh, how is it structured and who's involved? I think it's a pretty broad term that could encompass any number of agreements between corporations and governments. Effectively, what they're trying to accomplish is having the efficiency of a private corporation with the pocketbook of, of the government and with the supposed kind of social interests of, of the government. Right. I think there's usually some kind of oversight through whatever government agency is contracting it. I mean, is it something like where they'll actually have some kind of a board that government agents are on? I think the way you could look at it is, let's say a developer wants to build a green district or something like that in a city. They're going to need a lot of cooperation from the local government, which could mean using eminent domain to gain certain properties. It could mean that there's some sort of profit-sharing agreement between the developer and the city. So an example that I saw in an article recently was there was a bike share that was set up in some, I can't remember which city it was, but the way it was set up was that there was some private corporation that owned the bikes and had a sort of an operations contract to own and operate these bikes. And then the city had some sort of 50-50 profit sharing scheme where the city got half the take of the fees for these bikes. Yeah, th this sounds to me like it's just mercantilism. <laughs> yeah, well, it's neoliberalism, which is just sort of mercantilism in market clothing. Yeah, but honestly, it's like, what's the difference? Like if, if a government is licensing, you know, just one bike share to come into a town, the bike share gets to take whatever profits there is in the bike share industry, and then they just give the government their cut. I mean, what's the difference between that and like the East India Tea Company? Yeah, I've been playing around with the idea of privatization versus privateering. So we talk about privatization a lot, which to us means essentially completely divesting something from government control and government ownership so that it's completely in the hands of either private individual or trust or corporation or something like that. And contrasted to this is what I call privateering. So privateering was back in the days of mercantilism and early colonial days when a king would effectively give license to privateers 
which were basically pirates. And so they were they were licensed by the king to attack ships from foreign countries or maybe other sorts of merchant ships in order to share the booty with the king. So I think it's a good word to use to describe a lot of this public-private partnership stuff, as well as a lot of other sort of, you know, maybe government monopoly contracts and all the other kind of crony capitalism stuff that is so prevalent these days. Yeah, I like that phrase. And I like I like throwing that out there on Twitter. Anytime somebody complains about something being privatized, you know, and sold off to a single company in this way, this happens all the time with things like utilities, where if there's some public power company or something that they sell that off to some other specific company who now has a monopoly over that area. To us, that's a poor way to privatize something. We talked about this in a little more nuance and detail in our public space series, a couple of talks I had given, where we argued that for things like roads, parks, and other public spaces, that there were two things that needed to be considered. One was the fact that on many of these, public access had been established, and that by and large, a right of eviction in other words, um, exclusive use, had not been established. So to us, if a road gets privatized, those public access rights would need to be preserved through easements or other means. The other side of that is that any services or utilities or infrastructure or public space that's currently owned by a government, a lot of people would view that as being a form of public ownership, meaning that many people in the public essentially have an ownership claim on that asset, and it can't simply be sold away by one party, meaning the government. And I'm sympathetic to that. I think that there's a problem when a government takes something that, however poorly and inefficiently, is benefiting its citizens as owners. I think that those citizens need to have a say and possibly an ongoing ownership stake in that asset unless they relinquish it. And in fact, I think this is more complex than even like a stock ownership kind of company. Because this kind of thing happens all the time with, with a private company where you know the stockholders agree to a buyout, essentially. They agree to sell their company to some other company, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that when it's a government doing it, the government sells us off to this other company, and then there's nothing left to show for the citizens. Of course, the government gets paid. Yeah, but do they actually lower taxes after that? Yeah, no, of course not, right? I mean, <laughs> there's... And it's not just about it's not just about the money piece of it, but it's more about the the control piece of it, because of course when governments have taken these things over, they've built up the industry as a monopoly, and so when that gets sold off, it's going to continue to be a monopoly, which is the problem with the privateering scenario, and that's the problem you see in a lot of of so-called privatization efforts, is that rather than having a crappy monopoly government owner of some asset. You now have a crappy private monopoly owner of some asset, at least for a while. Yeah, and quite often in those situations, what happens is that the government will spin this thing off to a private entity, but then will impose a whole bunch of regulations on it effectively to, you know, to so-called protect the public against its monopoly power. But in reality, as regulations so often do, it ends up just entrenching the monopoly power of that new company because the regulations are so onerous that it makes it impossible for any smaller firm to compete. Of course, what does often happen is that there may be some bigger conglomerate or something like that that ends up buying up this asset. And then, of course, you've got even less local control over it, with all these same onerous regulations still in place that maintain the monopoly position of this company. I think the result from that, when governments have all these regulatory conditions that apply to some privatization of something, is that not only is that thing now a private monopoly, but now it's also an inefficient private monopoly. Yeah, 
Exactly. And it's not entirely inappropriate, at least in theory, for government to to put some conditions on it and to maintain some kind of an oversight in recognition of the fact that it is a monopoly, that it's, it's getting all these assets that it would take another competitor a long time to build up in that area. Yeah, because with any monopoly arrangement, they end up running into the what's often called the socialist calculation problem. But what Murray Rothbard showed was that the application of this to a socialist government is really just a special case of the problem which really affects any monopoly situation. And what the theory is, is that because there are specific factors that this monopoly corporation or government needs to procure, there aren't any real market prices for some of these items or services that they need because there's nobody else anywhere nearby that is bidding for these same resources. And so what happens is that they are unable to use the profit and loss pricing mechanisms to rationalize their supply and production chain. And as a result, they often end up with shortages of certain resources and surpluses of other resources. And it basically looks to an outsider like it's just plain mismanagement. But in reality, it's a much deeper function of the monopoly condition of that corporation. Right. They don't have the kind of feedbacks you get in a competitive market about what's valued and what isn't that would help them to set priorities and steer their resources to those things that were in greatest demand. And so creating a monopoly like this is just one of the problems that you get when you have these, this privateering situation. And at some point in the near future, we'll do an episode to really flesh out this idea a bit further and and hopefully provide some real-world examples. Our preferred solution for how to privatize government services and infrastructure and public space is, as we talked about in our public space series, creating some kind of a public trust organization that can become a receiver for these government assets. We use the term opt-in trust to imply a trust that people could choose to be a part of or not, and which would have a legal structure that would clearly define what their roles and responsibilities are related to that asset. This trust could take over ownership of the asset and manage it directly itself, or it could contract out the management of that asset while it retains ownership. Or ultimately, there could be a mechanism for the trust to to sell that ownership off to a private company in the way that, similar to how we just described governments doing it. But I think that by having that intermediate step, it creates an opportunity for more direct public ownership of the asset. And when I say public, I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about individuals who are choosing to opt into ownership of that asset. They're able to come in and manage it and secure the benefits of it as best as they can. But ultimately, there should be a mechanism for them to be able to sell that off if there's broad-based support for doing that. So we can apply this idea of privatization versus privateering to these public-private partnerships to see if it's a legitimate privatization that libertarians could actually get behind. And I think it's really important to make this distinction, too, because I'm always posting hashtag privatize everything on Twitter. And <laughs> and I'm sure there's plenty of people that read that that think I'm talking about privateering, you know, because that's the way privatization is so often done. So Twitter probably isn't the place to really delve into that nuance. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can get this idea out into the open a bit more and, and get people using these terms to distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate privatization. As I said in my talks about the topic of public space, uh, I don't like the word privatization to describe what we're talking about. And there are a couple of reasons for that. As I said in those talks, which for the listeners were our episodes 13, 14, and 19, the problem I had there is that I was talking about uh, privatizing 
public space, but keeping access to those spaces public. So in that case, it gets really confusing if you're talking about privatizing a road, but what you're really talking about is maintaining public access to that road, but just divesting the ownership of the road to some other organization. So our preference there was to use the word divest or divestiture rather than privatization. Divestiture implies uh, simply a change in ownership, whereas privatization implies a whole range of other exclusive use type of rights, especially to a piece of land. Beyond that, I have a broader problem with using the term privatization, and that is that it accepts this lexicon that we have today of calling government things public and calling things that aren't government private. Yeah. And as I've said before, probably on Twitter, I don't know if I said it on the podcast, you know, to borrow a line from the usual suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that government is public. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that people have this knee-jerk reaction where they see government doing something and they assume that they're doing it for the public, that they're acting as some kind of a public trust and that they're acting in the best interest of that trust and of the public. And I don't think that's the right way to conceptualize government. I see government as no different than any private corporation or private nonprofit organization that has a small group of people making decisions, that has a means of raising funds for itself or monetizing its services, and that has a very diverse and often conflicting set of goals that it's trying to achieve. Yeah, but the difference is is that the people can vote. <laughs> and that's that's why the government is always looking after the people's the people's best interests. All right. So all the people. <laughs> okay, so so first the first problem there is again, if we're talking about this being public, there's no government in the world that is truly public. There are always these limited localized monopolies so that if you have a city government, it's not a public city government. That ownership, if you think of a city almost like a stock ownership corporation, Ownership of that stock is limited to people who happen to live in this certain small area of land. If you're somebody who lives in the next town over and you drive into that town to work every day, you have no ownership of what happens in that government. You have no say in that. That ownership, to the extent that voting is a form of ownership, you know, even that limited form of ownership is limited to a small group of people within a certain area. If you compare that to something like a public stock ownership company, it doesn't matter where you live. You, know, you can buy anybody in the world, at least places that, are, that have access to markets, could buy a stock of Google and become essentially an owner of Google or, or any of these other publicly traded companies. To me, that arrangement is more public than a government arrangement, which again is a small local monopoly that's only opening up ownership to a certain group of people. Right? It's like an exclusive club. It's like a gated community with, with a homeowners association. Yeah, I've been thinking that the reason people like voting so much is because it's free. It technically doesn't cost you anything to go in and cast a vote. And, and you know, in fact, that's something that people will say when, when you tell them that you're not going to vote. They'll say, oh, well, you know, it's free anyways. And then they'll go and complain about corporations, you know, Walmart doing something or some oil and gas corporations doing something when they could probably buy a few shares and have much more of a say in what that corporation does than they do with their, especially at the federal level, with any vote they have at the federal level. I mean, if you look at, you know, it, it's not hard to do. If you look at the, the number of outstanding shares, you know, and, and work out, okay, I want to have, you know, more than one in 300 millionth of a say in what this corporation does, then you can work out how many shares you need to buy in order to do that. And then, you know, you'll have more power than you have when you vote for the federal government. <laughs> but, but you know what they would say? They would say, well, if, if I just buy this one share, you know, I, th- that hardly gives me any power. There's still just this board 
of directors who's in charge and they make all the decisions and and there's a CEO who directs everything and he makes all the, all the decisions you know if i just buy like one share of this company i'm not going to be able to influence that at all i'm going to have i'm going to have no power over that yeah which is exactly right and that's the exact same argument that we should that everybody should be applying to voting as a means of controlling or reining in government and somehow bending it to our collective will. And not to mention that, you know, the people aren't a homogenous unit either. If you get 60% of a vote in an election, that's considered a landslide. And so the idea that that there's some unanimous will of the people that the government is supposed to be serving is just preposterous on its face. Well, or I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think there are certain things that there is a will of the people that, you know, 80 or 90 percent of people probably agree on. But those things aren't things that people vote on. It's just that when it gets to that point, politicians aren't debating those things with each other anymore. Yeah, there's sort of a natural selection of wedge issues. You know, when you're voting for politicians, you're not going to get two guys up on stage debating, you know, but both agreeing that slavery is bad because that's something that everybody agrees with these days, right? So that's it's just not going to come up during a debate. So the issues that come up are the ones that do divide people that are these wedge issues like abortion or immigration or climate change. Right. So this idea that a democratic government is representing the will of the people and that those people own the government, you know, that it's publicly owned and publicly controlled, I think that's a misapplication of the word public. And so when we say we're going to privatize something, well, that kind of grants that it was somehow public to begin with, which, again, I don't think is the case. I think that a lot of our discussions and a lot of the way that people view government would be much improved by people recognizing government as a private entity that is no different from any other kind of corporation or organization. It's a private entity. It has a set of assets. It has certain services it does. It has certain rules that control what it does and how and why. But it's not acting on behalf of the public, at least in comparison to something like a public trust or even a cooperative or, or something like that. You know, There are other forms of organizations that that I believe are more public or could be more public, that could be open to ownership to anybody, and that could truly have as their mission the protection of those things that are identified as public assets. So are you going to come up with a new term for that? Because I came up with privateering, so this one's on you. I tried to think of it. I mean, the best I could come up with was publicization as opposed to privatization. Uh, that's, but, uh, but that's already a word. <laughs> is it? Uh, it's, it's... Well, publicization is like you're, you're publicizing something. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we, we need to think of a word for that. Maybe we'll farm that out on Twitter. We've said in the past divestiture, but that, that's sort of the specific process by which you divest the government assets to something else. But that, of course, has this whole other connotation these days because of this whole um, divest. You've heard of this um, boycott something? Divest, yeah, Boycott yeah, sanction divest movement. Yeah, so that's right. kind of taken on this whole other connotation these days, which isn't really what we're going for. Yeah, I want to come up with a word that implies what people think of with privatization, which is that you're taking something that's a government asset and putting it into the hands of a non-government organization or company. Mm. But I want something that implies that when that's done, that whatever public rights and benefits existed while it was in the hands of government should be maintained through this change of ownership. What about destating or, or uh, destatalizing? <laughs> <laughs> it's not getting better. <laughs> we'll keep working on it. As with most conspiracy theories, there are elements of Agenda 21 that are worth being concerned about. 
but it's not really productive for libertarians to fight Agenda 21 per se. Because in reality, a lot of people actually want the sort of things that Agenda 21 is trying to build in their communities. You know, and, and a lot of this stuff really, like smart growth and complete streets and new urbanism and all this stuff, like these aren't bad aesthetics. They do create these great amenities that can really benefit cities and towns if they're done right. So libertarians could get into a conundrum where we're cheering people for engaging in land preservation through private means by buying up ranch land. And I've even seen some schemes where, where people can get tax breaks for allowing easements on their land for, for some of this rewilding stuff. And on the other hand, if you're really concerned about Agenda 21 per se, then you look at the tax breaks on one hand and the promotion of Agenda 21 ends on the other hand and, you know, your head might explode. It's like that meme with the guy with the two red buttons, you know, wiping his brow <laughs> with tax breaks on one side and Agenda 21 on the other. <laughs> I don't know. I think any, any excuse for a tax break is, is hard to argue with. Of course, they end up distorting the marketplace, which is why they're done. Yeah, but I think you're right. The burden of proof in the case of a tax break is on the person who doesn't want to grant a tax break. Just as in other cases, the burden of proof is on the person who wants to charge a new tax right. to justify it. So there are elements of Agenda 21 that we should be concerned about, and these are really no different than any, any other issues that libertarians would be concerned about, such as eminent domain, taxation, these private-public partnerships, zoning controls that restrict how people can use their property, or that require them to go and ask permission in various and sundry ways from some cabal of administrators in their town. So the nice thing about this is that libertarians don't need to spend a lot of time going down the Agenda 21 rabbit hole in order to figure out how it works. Because trust me, I spent about a month researching this thing, and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. <laughs> it's just all-encompassing. So what we should be doing is looking to more productive ways to engage the kind of people who are doing these projects and try to influence them to approach these projects using non-aggressive, voluntary means. Yeah, that seems to be the theme we always come back to on our show, is that whatever ends people want to achieve, we can be kind of agnostic to. And we're happy to let those discussions play out where people are arguing for something like complete streets or walkable downtowns or densification in their downtown areas or preserved areas. All of these things should be discussed. But of course, the true value and virtue of, of those kinds of ideas can only be discovered when they're required to be brought about through voluntary market transactions rather than government coercion. Thanks for listening to Anarchitecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. <laughs>